Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and after last week's episode focused on the NBA at the All-Star break, this week we shift our sights to the college ranks, where Selection Sunday and March Madness are almost upon us for the first time in two years. My guest this week is Adam Stanko. Odds are a lot of you know him as the co-host of the Rejecting the Screen podcast. He's also a TV sports producer and an all-around basketball expert. In our conversation, we discuss Adam's five key criteria when looking for a March Madness champion, the teams to watch out for in this year's tournament, from the top dogs to potential Cinderella stories, and how to put yourself in the best position to win your March Madness pool. Adam also shares some great career advice if you're looking to work in sports media, then we touch on our fondness for some classic East Coast beers, and you won't want to miss the end of the interview when Adam shares the surreal story of hitting the hardwood with a basketball legend and what he did in that game that still ranks as one of his proudest moments. If this sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate a quick rating and review to help more people discover the show. One more housekeeping note, if you're looking to get your sports betting fix year-round, check out Dimers.com, where right now you can get daily college basketball picks. Alright, so without further ado, let's get to this week's conversation with basketball expert Adam Stanko. Adam, thanks for joining Props and Hops, and for the first time in two years, happy Almost Selection Sunday. How's it going today? It's good. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it is it is crazy to think that it's been so long since we've had an NCAA tournament. It's, it's odd. It's odd to think that way. Yeah, I'm happy to dig into what we've got on tap for this year's tournament, but first I'd like to touch on your background a little bit. How would you describe becoming interested in basketball and then parlaying that to a career path in sports media? It's funny you say that. I, I used to have a question where I would ask podcast guests, what's your earliest basketball memory? And then I realized that I probably couldn't even name mine. It was it was on a Nerf hoop way back when I was when I was, I don't know, uh, five years old or, or six years old. I, I've always just been extremely passionate about basketball. It's 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 been my world. Um, Dave McMiniman, who's a reporter at ESPN, um, covers the NBA, covers the Lakers. He you know, he talks about how all of our friendships end up being through basketball, the amount of people that he's met through the game and and how well the game's treated him. And Dave and I go back a long time and, and I feel the same way. And and so, I mean, whether it was through basketball camps, trying to evaluate prospects at a really young age, um, I always knew it's what I wanted to do and what I wanted to get into and I wanted to do sports, but really it was basketball. It was always just about how I could be a part of basketball in some form or fashion. And um, at so I went to Ithaca College in New York and got into production and wanted to do some type of broadcasting. My first gig was as a news reporter in Topeka, Kansas. I was um, a one-man band, shot my own stuff, and I was miserable doing news. I mean, I hung out with the sports guys and was covering, you know, Kansas' team back then and wanted to learn about that and all. And I had the opportunity after just about six or seven months in Topeka to come to Philadelphia, uh, which is where I'm from, to go back to Philly and host and produce a high school sports show. And that was the early 2000s. And so, I mean, we covered TJ Ford and LeBron James. And I did the first ever national TV interview with LeBron James. He was it was uh, he was a rising junior 
uh, at the ABCD camp and uh, seeing LeBron at that camp. I mean, there were a ton of guys that we, we ended up watching, you know, Sebastian Telfair at the time. We were covering guys all over, but uh, it ended up just being this incredible experience. Carmelo Anthony was there. Uh, but that's that's sort of where I had a chance to put what I had always been passionate about, cared about, learned about, read up on everything I could, talk to whoever I could. That's when I started meeting more people. That's when I really started learning how I could turn it into some more production side of things and and really intro- I've always cared about introducing people to who's next, right? I always I was always interested in caring about the guys that were going the next in line. And then from there I I um ended up selling tapes of high school and college well high school players to college teams and to NBA teams like when guys were making the preps of the pros leap um that was all all the fashion and all and uh, we sold them to college teams we sold them to NBA teams um and then from there went to ESPN and and now at, at the Pac-12 network and and also doing our podcast and just being involved in basketball shows or whatever anybody wants to talk about yeah, and one thing I love about the way you cover the game is what I see it as a marriage of analytics plus that human element. In mm-hmm. fact, I discovered you on the 2017 March Madness preview on Ed Fang's podcast, ironically called the Football Analytics Show, but the college basketball stuff is some of the best work that Ed does. And your annual interview with Ed on that show has become a rite of passage. And the topic I remember for that episode was man versus machine, where you were the man in the equation and Ed's numbers were the machine. And I thought that was a great way to set that foundation for the conversation and how the two of you look at the game. Um, Yeah, but when it comes to anything from a betting standpoint or for March Madness specifically, can you describe your approach to watching the game and how you evaluate different teams and players? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think you hit on it, really. I've always been fascinated from a statistics standpoint, you know, when I was younger and then obviously the verbiage sort of changes to analytics um, and sort of how things are produced. I, I don't, the way I've always talked to analytics folks now is like, you know, it, there's not a perfect stat out there. There's, there's not perfect information, but there's so much information that can be gleaned from stuff that's not just taken from the naked eye. And, and, you know, that's the interesting part that Ed and I discuss. And the funny thing about Ed is people don't realize we went to high school together uh, coincidentally. So, um, and, uh, he's, he's a brilliant dude, obviously goes to Rice and Stanford and then comes back to the basketball side of things. And, um, and that's how we sort of reconnected later in life. Great, great guy. And I appreciate, uh, the work that he puts in. Um, but that's always the sort of the basis of our discussions is that I sort of view things kind of as a pure, I think of myself as a purist first, who incorporates, you know, analytics. And I think he looks at himself as like an analytics guy that incorporates like some of the purest side of things. Um, And so I think there are certainly trends. I think there are ways to look at the game to say, okay, this is happening. But, you know, I mean, we we look at, you know, all aspects of the game now that have become sort of common knowledge, like, um, you know, the corner three is such an efficient shot, for instance, or what's happening to the mid-range game. But, you know, what backs that up statistically and, you know, how does that um, bear itself out? Um, and so I, when I'm watching the game, um, it's it's really my it's my enjoyment of the game and all has has evolved through the years. A lot of it now. I mean, I watched it always as a player, like what would I be doing in this situation? What should every individual on the floor be doing? Um, and I and I have now since like because I've had the opportunity to be around so many great minds for the game. I mean, 
Don McLean's become a good friend, and he's the top NBA workout guy out there, in addition to being the Pac-12's all-time leading scorer. But I picked Don's brain. Earl Watson teaches me so much from a coaching perspective and a point guard in, you know, in the NBA for, like, I think, 13 years. I've learned so much from Earl. Um, PJ Carlissimo, um, Seth Greenberg, you know, different analysts and coaches and players and just sort of how they see the game and, and all has, has, has changed my thinking. Um, but really for me, it's about, I, I think about what every individual would do on the floor. And I, and I try to just think about, are they doing the right thing? Are they playing at the hardest that they can possibly play? And so when I'm evaluating teams, oftentimes it's, you know, kind of effort they put in their level of toughness, how well they move the basketball. And then on its simplest form, I think I look at it as, you know, basketball is a very simple game. How hard is it for you to score? How hard is it for your opponent to score? And, and I think the teams that make it look easy because of their ball movement, because of the talent of their offensive players, because of um, guys' ability to break down uh, players off the dribble, their creativity, uh, their shooting ability, you know, okay, and oftentimes it makes it look like it's easy for them. And then, you know, how hard do they make it for their for their opponent? And so I think that's regardless of style of play, whether you're a drive and kick team, whether you're a team that, you know, plays zone defense, it, it doesn't really matter. For me, I look at, you know, again, how easy is it for you to score and how how easy is it for your opponent? Yeah, and I think you've done a good job of clarifying five key criteria that really bring that to light. So I'm excited to dig in on the DNA of a champion. And later we can get to specific teams going to this year's tournament from the top dogs to potential Cinderella stories. And then also later on touching on how to put yourself in the best position to win a March Madness pool. But mm -hmm. keeping with that theme of, you know, the simple elements, how easy it for how easy is it for you to score? How hard do you make it for the opposition to score? Looking at, again, what I think of when you break it down is the DNA of a champion. I mm -hmm. have heard you talk about five key criteria being excellent point guard play, mm -hmm. multiple NBA players, rim protection, a go-to scorer, and three-point shooting. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I'm curious to see if you've added or removed any criteria or if you've seen things become more or less important among those five keys. The biggest change, I, I appreciate you uh, mentioning all of them. Um the biggest change has been the level of play from a team's point guard. That's what's really changed. Now it's automatic that if you win a national championship, your your point guard is is most likely an NBA point guard. Now, I've said this before, in some ways it's kind of like self-fulfilling because in a way like the better a point guard plays in the NCAA tournament, the more exposure that he gets and so in that sense then the profile is is bigger, and so he has a better chance to go to the league. So that that is true. But point guard play is so important to the college game um, for multiple reasons. And I think most notably is that what people need to understand, I think, when breaking down the tournament, and we've all watched it. So I'm not I'm not you know I'm not talking over anyone or, or you know educating someone in a field that they're not familiar with, but. The, the tournament is so different from what teams have been playing during the regular season. And so let's let's take this year out of the fold for just a second and say in a given year, I always think about it like any teams that are playing in power conferences, as conference play goes on, you're, you're playing against teams that you've maybe met for the second time, then in the tournament, third time. Um, the arenas are packed. There's a lot of intensity, obviously the pageantry. Um, it's just a crazy atmosphere. And now all of a sudden you get 
put in some regional pod, and let's say you're not a one or two seed, now you're all of a sudden playing in front of fans that maybe the majority of fans aren't there to watch you. Um, the arenas don't have as many people. There's not that much excitement. The underdog, the moment there's some momentum, the underdog now has the, the momentum in their favor, and that picks up. So for all of those reasons, not to mention the fact that there's just something different about winner go home. And in a lot of times, in a lot of cases, win or your career is over. It's the last time that you're going to be playing, at least with that uniform. And that has a weird psychological effect. And so because of that, you need a stabilizing force. And and the point guard is that, is someone who can sort of run the show, control pace, which is obviously so important in today's game. We see these variations in pace where some teams play so fast and really try to push the ball in every possession. They try to get quick shots early on in the shot clock. And then you have other teams which, you know, really are prodding and deliberate and, and, and they're just getting into their offense and everything's slow and they, they move the ball really well, but it's, it's all right, let's take our time. And that also pr- helps out their defense and all uh, and wears down a defense and wears down players on, on the opposition. So I think a point guard is just so important in all those aspects. I think certainly because of the, the difference in, in pace and all, but I think I've valued point guard play a lot more, um, and then I always value NBA talent. I mean, really, it, it seems so simple. But I think the big one for that is a lot of times it's about do you have the talent in which if your top performer or top two guys aren't having a great game, you have to win six straight games to win a tournament. So it's not always the best team that wins the national championship, but you have to be very, very good. And you have to meet all these criteria or else there's no way you can win six consecutive games. And so I think about NBA talent and the role that that plays and helps with your overall depth. That's huge. And and when I say go-to score, what I'm referring to is not always people think about, okay, and we even asked the question on the podcast, rejecting the screen, who would you go to go ISO, reject screen and get a bucket at the end of a game? I'm not just talking about the end of a game. I'm talking about when you're Arizona and you're playing Wisconsin, you know, for in the elite eight and your team is now down six and you've missed your last three shots. Like, where are you going to get yourself some points? Cause you're desperate for it. And in that situation where coaching can't really play a role and where some other guys who don't have the talent or are kind of nervous, don't play a role. Who's your go-to scorer. And if you don't have one of those guys and you have a good balanced offense, but you don't have one particular guy you can go to, to get a bucket, you're going to be in trouble in, in a setting like that in the tournament. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think we can get to it when we touch on specific teams. But circling back to the point about point guard play really being mm-hmm. of elevated importance in recent years, this year it's going to be a different type of tournament. Everything's clustered around Indianapolis. And some of those factors about having elite point guard play relate to strictly X's and O's on the court. But there were other factors you mentioned about the crowd, about what's going on you know, beyond the floor itself. Is there anything that you think might introduce some unique variants to this year's tournament? I think we have seen it play out throughout this season that the idea of uncertainty has just dominated college basketball and dominated the sports world and our everyday lives. Um, And the stuff that's going on, I always say what's so difficult about predicting NCAA tournament success is that there are all these variables that we have no clue about. Sometimes it's, uh, a coach might be on the hot seat and doesn't have the respect of his players. It might be that 
uh, one of the top players is having arguments with his girlfriend, or, or there may be two guys on the team that are feuding. I mean, all this information that we just don't have. And sometimes it becomes public, but a lot of times it doesn't. And every team goes through through their ups and downs and, and through some sometimes trivial stuff to us, but but is a big deal to them and has to be worked out. And you think about this season, you think about the fact that a Stanford hasn't been playing, you know, in their home gym and they, they're playing in Santa Cruz and having to play that that's their home games and how that's impacted them. And, and, you know, they decided to change what that meant in terms of them being quad one games and all, and, and how they, they adjust the quad system and all for Stanford. But I think about all these teams and not knowing if your opponents are going to play because of, uh, because of guys testing positive. And, and, and so being away from their families and being away just from regular college life, which I think has really impacted a lot of the top tier teams in the country. And, and so I think I factor all that in and say what I, what I think the big difference is going to be is leadership this year. And I think passion has sort of wavered, I think, for, for a lot of college basketball players, just like there's been apathy that's grown for the rest of us in everyday life. And you talk about me trying to combine analytics and sort of my purest approach, but there's also, I like to think about things too uh, with a sense of humanity and, and what are people going through? I mean, basketball players are, are people too. Coaches are people too. And the more of them you meet, the more you realize that that's the case, that, that they're not superhuman. They're not immune to not just bad press, but also stuff that frustrates us in everyday life. Like same thing happens for these guys. And so there's a lot of stuff that they're dealing with right now. There are a lot of random variables just about everyday life uncertainty, like the health of their families. And and anyone who's worked in an office setting over the past year also understands there's a weird underlying tension about being in a place around people without masks on and stuff. It's just, it's, it's almost unnatural now. It's a weird feeling for us. So I think even for players, it's the same thing. There's this weird unnatural setting that comes in. So I come back to leadership and I think about, doesn't always have to come from your upperclassmen, but I think teams that have, you know, that are led by upperclassmen, teams that have strong voices in their locker rooms, teams that that's coaches really have the locker room under control. I think those teams are going to find a lot of success. They've already dealt with a lot of um, difficulties throughout the season. And so what kind of chemistry? And, and I think every great coach, I'll just say this, every great coach, the one thing, common thread that unites them all is that they are all able to get their teams to buy in. And I don't care what your style is and your, your coaching voice and what have you, but do you get your guys to buy in? And I think in, in this year, more than any other, that is of utmost importance. Yeah. And continuing with the theme of leadership coaches getting buy-in, I want to circle back to a point you mentioned of maybe there being some apathy in the year like this and understandably so, but before we get into maybe the cream of the crop this year, that brings to mind teams like Duke or Kentucky this season. And I know with Coach K and, and Calipari, what we see at Duke and Kentucky year over year, generally you don't question the coaching so much. But I'm curious as to your take on what might be going on at those programs right now. It's understandable if one-and-done players, especially during a pandemic, aren't as motivated. I mean, there are times in normal circumstances where they're probably just counting down the days so they can get to the NBA and get paid. And then I know there's the notion of a diminished home field advantage or in basketball, a home court advantage. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking with my NFL side of the brain for a moment there. But we definitely saw that throughout this past football season, especially thinking of a place like Cameron Indoor. I could see that being a big difference maker for Duke. But aside from maybe apathy or home court, what do you think 
is driving the slide back to the pack for some of those blue chip programs this season? And how could that have an impact on their prospects moving forward? Well, I don't think it can be avoided to to bring up the two points that you mentioned and say that home court advantage, when you all of a sudden say Rupp Arena and, and Cameron Indoor aren't what they typically are. I mean, that's huge and a good way for any of the power teams to sort of get back to what they do best. I mean, oftentimes these, these schools don't even leave that arena for the, you know, early portion of their schedule. So there's also, you know, there's also a domino effect that usually these teams then start the seasons, you know, yeah. Okay. They might play in a national tournament early on, sort of test their metal against some, some of the elite teams in the country, but then you, you know, you're eight and one, you're nine and one, and you've built this confidence as you start to knock off all these teams they didn't get that luxury this year. Neither of those teams did. And so I think the home court advantage was a huge factor for them. And then as, a, as you bring up the apathy, the, the thing with Duke and, and Kentucky that's been fascinating is sort of the philosophy that they've both chosen over the past, uh, you know, I don't know, five, well, for Duke, probably five years. Kentucky, uh, you'd easily say the past decade. And, and that's this philosophy that it's not just getting one and done players who anyone would take guys of that caliber. You know, you go down the roster of Duke and Kentucky over the last few years. It's unbelievable. But it's not just the the talent level, but it's also just embracing that philosophically. I mean, I, I did did an interview with Ian O'Connor years ago when he wrote a book about Sebastian Telfair, who um, was going to go to Louisville. And then Telfair ended up going straight to the NBA, but his recruitment of Telfair was over the top. Rajon Rondo wanted to go to Louisville, but because they were so excited about Telfair, he decided, forget that, I'm going to your rival and I'm going to go to Kentucky. And that was interesting because Telfair and Rondo ended up playing on the Celtics together. But the way that Ian described like having to deal with like recruiting a guy of that magnitude and sort of it changes your program. And and Stefan Marbury is always the example that like Bobby Kremen said, it set the program back just to have Marbury there at Georgia Tech for such a short period of time. And so I say all those things to say that you almost have to have a philosophical shift. And that's what Duke has done recently. And that's what Kentucky's done, where Kentucky tells their kids, hey, not only are you coming in and we're trying to get you to the league, but we're going to push the guys out that are there now and encourage them to go to the league as quickly as possible to create a roster spot. Like, do what you have to do immediately so that you can move on. And we're going to recruit on top of you. And we don't want you to take offense to it. We're doing it for your benefit. And that's embracing a philosophy. And other schools really can't do that. They're going to go all out maybe to get one guy. Maybe, like, again, use Stanford example. They go get Zaire Williams. No, he's going to be there one year. Josh Christopher at Arizona State. You know, Cade Cunningham at Oklahoma State. But, like, those kids come in for a year and it's, we're going to really try to get them. They can be program difference makers, all that. But for Duke and Kentucky, that's their DNA. Now that's who they are. They're, they're just all about, we have these guys who are going to be in and then quickly leave. And so now when you throw the variable in of, Hey, college isn't going to be the same for the few months that you're there or your experience isn't going to be the same. All that stuff changes. I think now that impacts you in a way mentally that, that really is, I mean, I don't think that anyone's prepared for any of this, but for Duke and Kentucky specifically, I think it's just had a strange psychological impact. And you see it with Jalen Johnson. I mean, there's all this talk about what's gone on, all this. And, you know, the stories that I've heard is he really truly has had a tough time emotionally dealing with this season. And so I don't blame a kid like that. And that's the struggles that he's dealing with now. Oh, 
my uh <laughs> my 10 month old is making a, a quick appearance on on the podcast that's, that's nice. funny. welcome aboard exactly thank you thank you for allowing her to jump on yeah well there are certainly some issues you touched on that i think carry real weight that we might not think of strictly from an analytics perspective that could be affecting the dukes and kentuckys of the world this season but one blue chip program in college basketball that really does have everything going in its favor right now that I'd like to touch on, Gonzaga. The clear number one, as we record this Monday morning, they are undefeated. I see some parallels between them and a team like the Utah Jazz in the NBA this year, where we're used to seeing great regular seasons. And they might be as good as they've ever been right now. But there's a history of disappointment once we get to the biggest stage. With Gonzaga, the fact that the stage won't be quite as big, the lights probably won't be quite as bright when we get to those later rounds. Maybe that works in their favor this season, but they don't tend to get very battle-tested in the West Coast Conference. All that said, why might this year be different for the Bulldogs, or are there any of those annual pitfalls we see that could rear their heads again once we get later on in the tournament? Well, it's weird because the tournament's so tricky because, you know, of all the variables we've already discussed and everything else that goes on. And I I think sometimes we get caught up in, oh, look, Duke disappoints in the tournament. Look, Gonzaga disappoints. But you really go back and look and see the success that they've had. You know, I mean, forgetting just them from where they came from as, you know, barely a mid-major to now where they are as a national powerhouse. I still think you look at the last decade and think they've had enormous success. They haven't won a national championship, obviously. Uh, but they have had some some great success. Um, I, that being said, I, I think this is Gonzaga's best team ever. I, I recently talked to Robert Sacre, a Gonzaga grad, about this. Um, and there's debate in the Gonzaga community as to whether it is or not. But they're completely loaded. I, I don't see many weaknesses for Gonzaga. I mean, it starts in the backcourt, of course. Jalen Suggs is just a truly special talent, total game changer. We talk about NBA-level point guard, and he's it. Um, he's, you know, going to be a top three pick in the NBA draft, potentially number one, uh, incredibly explosive. There's some Russell Westbrook comparisons. His statistics actually measure quite nicely to what, what Westbrook was doing his sophomore year at UCLA. And you knew that, that Westbrook, just like Suggs is scratching the surface. You can't watch him play and then not be blown away. And I think everything starts there. I mean, Suggs is just a matchup problem to start. First of all, he wants to push the pace which is huge. He's going to get his team some easy buckets. But in addition to that, um, you know, on the perimeter, uh, he does what great players do. And I don't care whether you're talking Tracy McGrady, Kobe Bryant, any of the games, you know, all Michael Jordan, all-time great scorers, uh, players do. And that is they see right past the guy that's immediately guarding them. And so what Jalen Suggs does is, whether it's from top of the key or oftentimes from the wing where he'll operate, when he gets the ball, it's about, I'm, I know I can get by my guy, so where's the help? And if the, it doesn't look like the help is ready immediately, and if you watch a James Harden play, you'll see this. You know, it, um, Obviously, LeBron, if the help is not there immediately, boom, he's gone, and he's going by his guy, and he's going to finish with a floater, with a dunk, uh, some other you know finishing move at the rim. Um, and so that alone is so tough. So now you've got to always keep eyes on Jalen Suggs and then he can distribute the ball. And then in the backcourt, it's, you know, I, um, I, Ayayi, uh, who's a really talented player, could end up as a guard in, in the league. We, we um, see Andrew Nebhard, who's the, the Florida transfer. And so that backcourt already is loaded and you have a lot of stabilizing forces there and, and guys with experience and talent, uh, 
Then Corey Kispert can really shoot the basketball so well. So they have put they they'll put multiple shooters on the floor. And Drew Timmy is a really tough matchup problem down low. And he's a guy who you don't see many guys back to the basket scorers now. He can face up and shoot it, but he also, if he posts you up, I mean, it's it's almost automatically a bucket. And guys almost in the in college game almost don't even know how to def- even in the NBA, they don't know how to defend post-ups. So that's just another scoring option for them. So they can play fast, they can play slow, they have multiple weapons. Great shooters. I mean, there's really just so much to love, and and they haven't been tested at all. And I will say, it hasn't been an issue for them in the past. It's not like we're seeing Gonzaga get bumped in the in the second round. It, I don't think it's something where. And they also played a really difficult non-conference schedule, and they were dominating that as well. So I, I think Gonzaga is going to play whoever you put in front of them. And and the other big thing I will say about Gonzaga, it's always brought up, and it, and it is an interesting point. And I would probably have the same questions. It always gets brought up. Well, they play a weaker conference schedule than 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 the big boys do, the other blue bloods. But keep in mind, they're always getting. I mean, it is it is every other team in the West Coast Conference's Super Bowl to play Gonzaga. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, if you're San Francisco, Gonzaga's in town. It's like you're getting everything from those teams, and I think there's something about that. That may not be the the quote unquote battle tested that we normally think about, but it certainly is something that I think has an impact and does strengthen them as the season goes on. Yeah, I think that last point's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective before with Gonzaga, but it reminds me of my college days at USC, where every year that I was there, they won the Rose Bowl and it mm-hmm. was a consolation prize. And I recall games like Arizona State in October coming to the Coliseum and it's, you know, it's a one possession game down to the end. I remember some pretty mediocre Washington teams giving USC fits, but there is something to be said for knowing how to take a haymaker from somebody else and being able to respond week after week, or in this case, it could be night after night. So that's an interesting angle that that might make others, in addition to myself, perceive Gonzaga a bit differently. And looking at the next tier, if we think of the wisdom of the crowds and and maybe just beyond the wisdom of the crowds, but analytically, there's a lot to be said for teams like Baylor, Illinois, Michigan. I know you were early to the party on Illinois on mm-hmm. your interview with Ed a few weeks ago. You talked them up before they were looking like a pretty safe bet for a one seed. But what do you see as the pros and cons for that next tier down? Gonzaga maybe in a class of its own right now. But when we look at teams like Baylor, Illinois, Michigan, um, what could really elevate them down the stretch or even as highly ranked as they are, what might be their undoings? Well, it's a, it's a good question. So Illinois, I'll, I'll start with, I, I love, I, I love this roster construction, certainly again, as it, as it pertains to winning a, a national championship. And um, I just literally, before uh, we got together talked to a, a former big time coach and he was telling me, um, he loves Illinois too. Um, Desumu is is clutch, and and I know there's always debates in the analytics community about what that means and all. Uh, there's no question whether whether it doesn't whether it means that guys raise their level of play late or not. We can get into that debate, but certainly we know that other guys fall, and so when when games get to crunch time, and so that's the way that I always look and and get in the discussion in between, you know, this argument of the purists versus analytics, which I don't even know how much that even exists anymore. But the idea of a clutch gene or what have you, I just think it's that certain guys can still maintain composure and poise late in games where a lot of other others don't. And and anyone who's 
who's played in late game situations, been around players in late game situations, will all tell you the same. There's certain people that don't want the ball. They don't even want to be on the court um, in, in those spots. And Desumu is the, the exact opposite. He thrives and uh, really is, is incredible late. And so that is, is huge for them. But, you know, clearly it's, it's not just him. Um, you know, I, I talk about Adam Miller, who I think is outstanding shooters, just scratching the surface. And this guy can, can really play. Um, Kofi Coburn is, um, you know, a big, who's got a ton of potential and is just massive in size. And so again, you talk about a rim protector and intimidator for, for Illinois. And then the rest of that backcourt is just, is awesome. So I, I think the thing is they can throw a ton of guards at you, but they can also protect the rim. And, and when, again, you talk about these things that lead to tournament success. And the reason I talk about rim protector is again, because they help out. So now you can take chances on the perimeter, knowing that there's a guy behind you that's going to help you out, uh, but also covers up for mistakes. And, and it always, again, you go back to that simple formula. How difficult is it for the opponent to score? And what's the easiest way to score? Well, it's around the hoop. It's around the rim. It's it's in the paint. And if you have someone like a Coburn down there, that's just, if nothing else, intimidating. Forget if they're actually blocking shots, but just enough to be intimidating so you don't want to take shots down low, that's going to make an impact. So I think for Illinois, I love everything about that team. Adam Miller's got to shoot it well because I think he becomes the X factor there and he has that potential. His release is so quick. And I think he's going to be the best shooter in the draft maybe next year or in two years. He's a guy that I, I keep screaming about because I feel like he jumps out when I watch them on video, but but um, he's not there yet and he's not consistent enough yet. And so if he's shooting it well, that could be a positive. If he's not, shooting might be an issue for this team. I mean, they certainly have the ball handlers and and guys to to handle situations late in game and Desumu, I, I love. Um, but that but that could be one for them is just other scoring if all of a sudden Miller's not shooting it well and Desumu is having an off night. So that could be uh, a downside for them. For Michigan, I think it comes down to point guard play. I love this team and I love the job that Jawan Howard's done this year. Hunter Dickinson is a beast, uh, one of the more underrated players in the country. Obviously, we saw what he did against Luca Garza recently. He can shut down opposing bigs. He's another guy who sort of knows that he's a post. And that's awesome. He's not a guy right now stepping out and shooting threes and trying to get his NBA draft stock up. He knows exactly who he is. He's an old school big man. Um, he's not the fastest guy down the floor, but he he really plays hard and he runs hard and does all those things um, that you love on the defensive end. And, and so I really like Hunter Dickinson, and he's a huge matchup problem for teams. Um, obviously, you look at whether it's Wagner and, and Livers is a tremendous scorer and excellent leader for, for Michigan. And really, everyone on that team plays well. They, they, they share the basketball really well. I love how they distribute the ball. Uh, but I think for them, it's point guard play. I think they're going to need uh, a situation where um, they're led from that position. And I just don't know. And, and I'm not talking – I don't think they're going to be upset early because I think they, they have such balanced scoring. They play so hard. Uh, those guys are all unselfish. So I, I think they have no problem getting out of the first weekend. I just think when you compare them and say, to me, it's sort of like, all right, how do they compare against Gonzaga? Because I think ultimately that's what you're looking at for all these top tier teams. Um, and then, you know, you bring up Baylor and Baylor just has weapons across the board. I mean, that backcourt is crazy. And to think those guys all sort of return, you know, Butler and 
and Teague and, and Mitchell and just the, the toughness, the experience that they have, their ability to score, distribute. Um, uh, and then I think for them, a guy that that's an X factor, again, a shooter you talk about, it's interesting because all these teams have X factor sort of shooters. Um, you know, Matthew Mayer and on, on Baylor can really stroke it at six, nine, and he's never seen a shot that, that he doesn't want to take. I mean, that his confidence is through the roof. Corey Kispert's kind of the same way on Gonzaga. Um, Livers will take any shot that you ask him to, you know, on Michigan. And then, like I said, Adam Miller is sort of the guy, even though younger and, and uh, not as consistent, but probably has the prettiest stroke of all of them. Um, you know, on Illinois, they, they all sort of have that one guy. Um, that they they need and who really can break a game open because of their ability just to knock them down and because they're sort of unconscious with it and, and no conscience if if you will so um, but I, I think for them it's you know vital is is huge just the defense that he plays and causes a whole bunch you know he's sort of like a mini Draymond Green in a way and, and causes a lot of problems disruptor defensively for for Baylor um, I I think. Baylor's outstanding. I, I, the only thing that I would I would say about Baylor is just that they're not Gonzaga. I, I think that ba- Gonzaga just has almost more weapons than than Baylor does. But their backcourt's really tough, and uh, you know I, I think sometimes like get, trying to get some low post scoring, trying to get some easier buckets might be a problem. It's not typically an issue for them, but I think when they have had issues, and I don't just mean this year. I mean over the last two years, you have to sort of go back because there haven't been many challenges for them. Um, is just getting easy buckets. And when those aren't easy to come by, they're so perimeter based in terms of their scoring that sometimes the shots aren't falling and that, and that's sort of where they're susceptible, but that's not to say that it's a major weakness because they've had so much success over the last couple of years. But when I'm evaluating those teams, that's it's pretty much what I'm looking at as the weaknesses. I really like all three of them, um, you know, Baylor, Illinois, and Michigan, but I just don't think they're on the same level of as, as a Gonzaga. Yeah, that is, outstanding analysis on all three teams. And I'd love to circle back to that point on Illinois about, you know, how much is being clutch and how much is just not falling on the bigger stages. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of one of my favorite books I've read over the past year is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he has a line that you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your systems. So it might just be a matter of, you know, being that guy who grinds every day looking to get 1% better and and not taking days off or just having a certain system in place that enables you to maintain a level of performance rather than fluctuating for better or worse when the lights shine the brightest. So absolutely. Like I know, I know, you know, Kobe Bryant used to talk about it and he said, here's the thing. He wouldn't do anything different in those late game situations than what he was doing typically throughout the game. It's just, again, the guys around him were. And so for him, it's about how do I make this just like I'm sure for NFL kickers, how do I make this feel the same as normal? The guys that can say, I'm going to make this feel like I'm shooting free throws, you know, in the driveway or, you know, or that I'm just playing pickup with my friends, the guys that can sort of go to that level of relaxation, um, that those are the ones that end up obviously performing way better. Cause you know, the other guys are really getting tight and you see it late in games because the ultimate measure if people want to know, and this was something I learned years ago and I always look at and try to tell people, if you look at a free throw shooter late in the game, if they come up short, it's because they're tense because they don't get low enough on their shot because their muscles are all tight and they come up a little bit short. Either they pull back on their on their stroke or because they don't bend low enough on on, uh, uh, you know, bend their knees low enough. And so it's always interesting to check that out about the guys that end up in tight situations, end up getting a little bit tighter. 
Yeah, and we'll we'll probably see that quite a bit as these games get pretty tight down the stretch. To your point, win or go home for a lot of guys, possibly win or your career's over. And having touched on Gonzaga, Baylor, Illinois, Michigan, are there any other teams that you think belong on the short list at the very top? Or does that seem like a pretty set four in terms of the most likely teams to cut down the nets at the end of this? Uh, I mean, I think those are the teams that I would say I, I would put right away and say those are the teams that I think could w- win the national championship. If Gonzaga doesn't, and I would be surprised, and I don't like saying that, you know, and, and typically you go for for those tiers almost um, who meet those criteria that you mentioned um, that I have as sort of that, that checklist. And you can always go back later and you go, Oh, wow. Yeah. They did have multiple NBA players. Yeah. They did have an NBA caliber point guard. Yeah. They did have a rim protector, a go-to scorer and, and multiple shooters. Um, you know, obviously Villanova is just crushed by, by the news. Colin Gillespie going down. That was, that's huge. His, his recent injury really hurts Villanova. I think Iowa is, is a really interesting team to me. I mean, you know, I know there's issues about them defensively and there, there's question marks there. Um, but on the perimeter, they're phenomenal. Uh, they have multiple guys who can really shoot it. They play a lot of four out and Luca Garza's ability now to stretch the floor and his ability to shoot it. He's just such a crazy matchup problem for teams. And, you know, I always get asked about Garza and Dickinson and, you know, the, the, the really good college post players and why they aren't, regarded as you know lottery picks in the nba and you know it's a has a lot to do with the style of play in the league right now what's valued and all that kind of stuff but garza's development's been crazy and he's an excellent three-point shooter now and that's huge but the one thing i always say about guys and, and even drew timmy probably falls into this camp too for gonzaga is that even if they seem like traditional post players and they are a little bit slower and while they would have been greatly valued 15 20 years ago and that's that value is not the same in the nba right now the issue, even in the NBA, is that NBA teams are still going to have to guard them, you know. So when Luka Garza and Hunter Dickinson go to the league, yeah, there's a lot you can you can poke holes in their game in terms of them being like classic five men in, in today's league and whether they fit. But guess what? On that Defensively, you might have some issues and maybe they aren't great in pick and pop situations or, you know, they're not great switching defensively or what have you. But you still have to guard those guys. And you think about that just as an NBA problem. And now think about it in the college game. I mean. To try to think that teams right now can guard Luka Garza, no one is coming close on the college level. So the fact that you automatically know you instantly have 20 to 25 points coming from Luka Garza makes the game so much easier. So now all of a sudden some of those other guys, um, you know, Wieskamp and and Bohannon and C.J. Frederick, those guys start hitting shots. Forget it, it's lights out. You have no chance against them to keep up offensively. So I really like the style that, that Iowa plays. They play really hard. When they get into it defensively, um, and they'll there's some effort there, uh, but it's just a question of really just sort of the, the the personnel. But when they can defend on just average or a little bit above average, that team is is excellent. I, I put them in that in that tier too. And a team that could make a run that's really interesting is Oregon. Um, I don't I don't think Oregon's winning a national championship, but I will say people have. Ha- they always get in trouble evaluating Oregon because a lot of what they see, especially when you think about the non-conference is, you know, the first half of the season. And we sort of make these judgments about teams based upon what they've done the first half of the year. But you look at Oregon every single year, they incorporate their freshmen and they incorporate transfers. That's a huge part of what Dane Altman does. He has crazy roster turnover every year and no coach in America 
handles chemistry better than him. I don't know what the secret sauce is, but he is able to take his core guys and make the mesh. And so by the end of the year, he gets his guys um, and they have two assistant coaches, Stubblefield and, and Mike Menigo, who's a really close friend of mine, who do a wonderful job, I think, just getting these guys to like each other. I don't know what the secret to that is in the, on the college level. But as the year progresses, these teams play so well together. And we didn't see Will Richardson in the first half of the year. Well, now all of a sudden, and Chris Duarte went down with an injury. So you think about a team that's equipped to handle the issues that living in a COVID world creates. And then you start to talk about how these guys incorporate transfers. And then you look at the talent level and say, Duarte, who leads the Pac-12 in steals and is one of the finalists for Pac-12 Player of the Year and is an offensive offensive force, can shoot the basketball, can take it to the hole, he's strong, guards anyone. You have a Duarte, you have a Chris uh, uh, Will Richardson. They bring in LJ Figueroa as a, as a transfer. Uh, Omayuri who's come in as a transfer. And all of a sudden, this team has a bunch of weapons. I've described them as a bunch of guys that look like rectangles. They're all strong. They're a little bit undersized. They play really hard, and they're playing really well together. Oregon is a team I would not want to face um, in this tournament. And then then the other really interesting one for me is is uh, is Oklahoma State. I mean, we still have to see. Something could happen where they're not necessarily eligible. There is a whole deal with appeals, all that kind of stuff. Oklahoma State should be in the tournament, and obviously we know what Cade Cunningham is capable of. I don't think they're winning a national championship, but his talent level and the fact that he controls games single-handedly, I think you have to talk about Cade Cunningham and Oklahoma State if you're going to talk about a team that could at least be dangerous in the tournament and maybe knock off one of these teams that we describe as being the elite in this field. Yeah, some good food for thought there on teams that aren't ranked at the top of the totem pole right now, but... Iowa, Oregon, Oklahoma State, possibly poised to make deep runs. And I made a parallel earlier between the Jazz and the NBA ranks and this year's Gonzaga team. The way that you described Oregon reminds me of what I've heard a lot about the Heat come out of the All-Star break, where Jimmy Butler had a big bout with COVID. Their first season results are not necessarily indicative of what we're going to see from them moving forward. Similarly for the Ducks, with a lot of transfers, getting some big-time production back in the lineup more recently we don't want to give too much weight to the full season numbers when we know that in the case of that team's makeup, what they've done recently is probably more predictive of what we could see from them in the tournament. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, and that, and that to me cannot be understated. And so and that's one of the interesting discussions Ed and I have every year because he looks at some numbers and, and tries to adjust them based upon changes as the season goes on. But it's so difficult to keep up with that. And as we talked about throughout this this discussion, the idea of variables, I mean, that's the big one for Oregon. You cannot judge what Oregon did the first few months of the season and say that that's the same team now. And for some teams, bringing good players back in the fold isn't necessarily a positive. You know, now all of a sudden, other guys on the roster have less minutes. But when you talk about a Dana Altman team, he finds a way to incorporate that and really seems to work on that chemistry in a way unlike I've seen any other coach do it. Yeah, one more question before we move on to the final topic I wanted to touch on with you about how to put yourself in a good spot to win one of these pools that everybody's going to be filling out their brackets for. Looking at the teams that probably won't make a deep run, but they might bust some brackets. The possible Cinderella stories, a big crowd pleaser every year. 
I saw that you tweeted last week, you'd be surprised if Utah State doesn't win a game in the tournament, assuming they get in. Are there any other dark horses to bust some brackets that, again, they might not be a favorite to make an Elite Eight or Final Four run, but they could really cause some mayhem in those first couple rounds? Yeah, certainly Utah State, uh, I, I really like. And then Drake is is another one. They're good offensively, really solid defensively. Um, they got Hemp Hill is a, a Green Bay transfer, Roman Penn, a Siena transfer. Teams that have transfers sometimes you, you find having success in the tournament because they're not afraid. They've seen different levels of competition. They've seen guys all over the country. And I think that, again, you talk about the, the psychological impact, I think always plays a, a part. Um, these, these are people that anybody that's gone through a transfer experience also has grown from that not just with level of experience, but you know their worldview has changed. And so again, you talk about the human element, and I think that that plays a part. And so, you know, and even Utah State, as Marco Anthony is a UVA transfer, won a title with with Virginia. So just you know, being a part of that, um, you know, changes things. So yeah, those are the two teams that I would say. Again, you always have to look at matchups. You have to see how things are going to play out. But Utah State and Drake could be two teams that I think could could act as as sleepers in this tournament. Yeah, I love that focus on what these players are going through as people. We don't always account for that. Again, especially when we're looking at stats, that's tough to take into account. And and sometimes across the mainstream media, it could be easy to overemphasize some of these things, but mm-hmm. trying to find a way to properly give them at least some weight. I'm reminded of uh, a friend, uh, David Molinsky was a legend in the sports betting space in Las Vegas and would do a lot of great work around March Madness every year. And he was so good at getting information beyond the advanced metrics that you mentioned if a player is, you know, maybe they're having issues with their girlfriend or maybe, you know, they could be having families where if there's job loss or health issues, we're not always going to know this, but when things like that, you know, come into play for the rest of us in our daily lives, it's a factor for these players as well, especially in a year like this, there's already the nerves of being on that big stage. Yeah. And I'll say, I'll say this one final point on that is I learned about this. I remember, I want to say I was in middle school maybe, and I used to love the tournament and I'd watch so many games and try to learn about so many teams. And that's why, and they don't use it as an official metric now to try to, seed teams or even, you know, decide whether these teams should get in the field. I mean, everything now is about, you know, your net ranking and it's about, you know, your quad record and all that. But it used to be your, you know, your last 10 games, your last eight games. They would always look at how you close the season. And I remember, I want to say it was Missouri and it was Anthony Peeler and Lee Coward and Doug Smith. And I thought this team was so great. This I'm dating myself going way back and say tournament history. But I remember this team and I, I want to say they lost to northern iowa and i i could be wrong and someone can check me on that but but i was so stunned that they lost but part of it was that something was not right with that team in the end of the season so a lot of things sometimes i'll tell people to check that look to see if a team has been struggling in their last few weeks and again this year everything's sort of thrown off and everybody could have a reason why they have a bad week or a bad couple weeks but and it's usually such a great indicator that something is wrong. And we don't know what that is. It might be the head coach and assistant are fighting or what have you. So you may not always have the same access that some of these evaluators and these prognosticators have. But you can look sometimes just at the record and see a team's performance. And you know what? They've been getting blown out. Or this team has not been looking the same. Like It's not like you can all of a sudden turn that around. Now, sometimes we flip the other way and we think that a team isn't playing well. But guess what? They get a favorable matchup in their first game. And so now all of a sudden they win their first game. And then 
maybe the team they're supposed to play gets upset. So now they get again a favorable matchup. Well, now all of a sudden, guess what? Now this team has advanced past the first weekend. They're they're now a sweet 16 team. And everyone's going, oh, look how wrong everyone was. They thought this team was a mess. It's like, yeah, but they won two straight games. Like, that's not impossible to do. I mean, these are all very good teams that go to the NCAA tournament. So so the, the flip side can work too. But always look for teams that seem to have something wrong with them because it's a very hard thing. And especially this year when now all of a sudden you've got to come together again for a common cause. Um, if you're not playing well and your head's not on straight and there's a lack of focus, it's really hard to pick that up just to start an NCAA tournament. Yeah, and one way I try to approach that is it's clear that that type of information can be so valuable and knowing what to do with it can be even more valuable. It can sound really daunting, especially to a casual fan or somebody who doesn't make a living in the industry and might not have access to all kinds of information. But to your point, just even looking at recent results, if we know what an issue might be with a team, it can still be hard to quantify that. Sometimes we might not even know what an issue is, but even just knowing that there's quite possibly something the onus isn't on you if you're betting on a cider total or filling out a bracket to know exactly what's going on and exactly how much impact that's going to have. It's all about being better than 51% of everybody else out there. It's that classic story. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And <laughs> so this, this might feel like it, it can be a little bit intimidating, but really just trying to find small edges here and there. Nobody's getting this stuff 100% right. That's why... Warren Buffett can offer whatever a billion dollars to somebody to get a complete racket because it's it's not going to happen. But just getting an edge up on the person next to you might be all you need as opposed to getting everything, you know, hitting the nail on the head. Absolutely. And I, and I would say that the two biggest things I look at when when I advise people to fill and you'd be amazed that the, uh, you know, on on Facebook and the texts I get and hey, can you help fill out my bracket? Sometimes I get people just frankly asking me to do their whole bracket and I always say like I do not want to make picks for you like my best thing for you is to I, I give them three pieces I three pieces of advice the first of which is I can help you learn about who these teams are but I don't want to be responsible for you making the determination because there, there are way too many variables and I don't want to make a pick on a game and then you go and choose the game and then because somebody missed the front end of a one-on-one late that team loses the game or a guy dribbles the ball off his foot. Like it, you know, the, the, the smallest, a ref misses a call determines whether teams win or lose games. But I want to try to equip people with the information of, okay, here's how I see both these teams. This is their style of play. This is who this team needs to play well. And then, you know, I leave it up to hopefully for the fans, like, Hey, then you determine who do you like in that matchup? Now you might not know about one team, but you know about the other. So let me, let me inform you about the team you don't know about. So, so that's my first part. Secondly, and Ed is Ed Fang is again, I, I go back to Ed's information. He always brings up the great point, get into smaller pools. I think that's huge. You know, you get into these gigantic pools. Well, all of a sudden these variables matter a lot more. And as he points out, like somebody's grandmother inevitably wins because of the guesswork and because of those things happening by chance and the games that are 50, 50 happen to go the, the other way, their tails rather than heads. And so that part's huge. And the smaller your pool, the more your information and knowledge and the edge you get, as you say, you know, it's not outrunning. Now, if it's, you know, if the bear is chasing you, um, uh, I, I guess in some way that analogy sort of flipped like, 
you know, you, it, it, with a smaller pool, it's giving you a better chance to to outrun your your opponent in, in a chance, and and that your information becomes way more valuable. The larger the pool, the more you start to get into luck playing a, a major role. Um, and I think and I think that's huge. And then the last one for me again, use these factors that I give, like as the secrets to winning an NCAA championship, and basically figure out who do you think can win this thing. And you sort of go from there. Now you want to look at how matchups are going to play out and all that kind of stuff. But to me, it's, I always come back to, there's only a handful of teams. And that's why I started this in the first place. There's only a handful of teams that can win the national championship. A bunch of teams can win two games in a row and get to the sweet 16. A bunch of games can win even four games in a row and get to the final four. But just because you get to the final four doesn't mean that you're winning a national championship. And I think sometimes that we, we overvalue what teams do in the tournament. And we also say like, oh, this conference had a terrible year because the teams went two and six or whatever. No, like a lot of it has to do with matchups, chance, luck, all those things. But really it's about who can win it. And when you start to narrow it down to the teams that can actually win it, like we talked about throughout this, this discussion, I think you really start to go from there and say, all right, and don't outthink yourself and say, all right, these are the teams who could realistically win a national championship. And if you don't know, go down that checklist. Do they have an NBA caliber point guard? Do they have multiple NBA players? Do they have a rim protector? Do they have three-point shooters? Do they have a go-to scorer? And you try to figure out, and maybe the team that's going to win it has four of those things, maybe five. Well, okay, let's put them in the in the conversation. But figure out who your national champion is, get in smaller pools, and then try to evaluate games individually. And that's going to be your best chance, I think, of, of having a successful bracket. Yeah, I love that approach because I remember the last time we had a tournament in 2019, I was in a pool of about 25 coworkers and I picked Virginia, figuring they're one of the teams that's definitely in the mix, but they're not going to be the most popular, especially because the year before they'd become the first one seed to lose to a 16. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, once the first game tipped off and I was able to see who everybody else picked, I was one of two people, again, in a pool of about 25, one of two people with the team that ended up winning. And it wasn't really a shock because they were a one seed. They were a powerhouse, despite the fact that they had had one really bad night the year before. So I think finding the right pool size and trying to identify the champion, as far as default settings go for probably 95% plus of the pools that people will be entering, that's pretty much the name of the game. Precisely. And and that, and that, and that uh, Virginia team... I mean, had an NBA backcourt, NBA point guard. It's funny. You look at all those things, and to your point, you know, what is it, 8%, you know, two, uh, two of 25 people end up picking them as national champions. That's a tremendous value for sure. Yeah, with a team like Gonzaga, it can be tricky because I believe, I mean, if we just try to factor in the VIG and Vegas odds right now, they're, I believe they're priced somewhere in the range of 35 to 40% to win it all. And even if they're a clear best team, if if let's say half the people filling out brackets will pick Gonzaga, well, you don't want to take a 50-50 shot at a 40% probability of that occurring. It's if you can find a team with a 15% chance to win it all, but you end up being one of the 8% of people to pick it, that's where the value lies. So one more tip that I'll leave things off with would be to look at sites like ESPN and, and other places will list in real time the percentage of the percentage of the time that each team is being picked as a champion and making use of that information can be really valuable, especially a year like this. The first game doesn't begin until Friday. So there's an extra day to get your picks in. We don't need to rush to do everything. Just looking at what other people are picking, zigging where other people are zagging um, could be the way to go. But yeah, consider your pool. I love the notion of 
honing in on the the cream of the crop that could win it all and then going from there. So Adam, um, thank you so much for your time. I'd love to wrap this up with a couple rapid fire questions to bring things home. Sure. Um, starting off with career advice, you I've heard you have a special bond with sports center anchor Kevin Nagandi and mm-hmm. what that says about what it could be like to work in sports. So I'd like to turn it over to you to speak on a big career lesson you've learned as a result of that relationship. Oh, wow. Well, we actually, so I had worked on this high school sports show, as I mentioned. And the funny part is um, Kevin had worked on the show. It was like a mom and pop show, but we were doing all this national coverage, but it was out of Philadelphia. He's Kev's from the uh, Philly area and we're both from, from the suburbs and I didn't know him, but he had worked on the show like three years prior. And all the, the coworkers, again, there's like eight or nine people in the office working on this thing. They all, referenced how Kevin used to work on this show and how talented he was. And now he was in Florida and he was in Sarasota and trying to make a name for himself and all this. And so I had heard all about him. And what was funny also was our high school intern at the time was Dave McMiniman, who I mentioned from, uh, from ESPN. So Dave is like a little brother to me. Uh, and Kevin's also, I mean, Kevin and I are the best of friends. And so, um, yeah. So, and then it turned out our careers went different ways and bounced around and all this. And we both ended up at ESPN starting the same week and we didn't know each other, but I went up to him and said, Hey, I, you know, we worked for the, the high school sports show it was Ross productions was the name of this small company in Philly. And it was like, we had this instant bond right away. Cause we could trust each other, knew each other in this, this huge, you know, fishbowl that, that was, that was ESPN. And, and so right away we had a connection, um, he ended up being the officiant at my wedding and I was the officiant for his, his um, renewal of his vows. Um, and so we're extremely close. Obviously people who've seen his work know how, how talented Kevin is, but he's also one of the best people in the business. And I, I would just say that um, man, in terms of production and, and career advice, the big, the two big things I would tell people are number one, figure out what it is that makes you passionate about if you're getting into TV production um, sports media, um, you know, really what is it that's driving you? You know, my wife was really wanted to be for a long time on air and she loved that. And we had discussions about it and she, her career wasn't going the way, way she wanted it to go. It, w- it was moving, but it wasn't going where she wanted it to go. And I, I, we had a frank conversation about like, what is it that you love? And she's like, well, I love telling stories. I just want to tell people stories. So I said, well, why don't you focus on that? Like, if, you know, she didn't even love being on air. That that's not what made her passionate. It was it was about telling stories. So she ended up doing that. She worked on E60 and Outside the Lines, and, and became this great investigative journalist and broke all these stories about you know Baylor's football scandal and um, and uh, Louisville's prostitution scandal and all these things. And and none of those things would have happened had she just been so focused on being on air and and, and like scratching an ego itch or something because that was never what it was about for her. It was about telling people's stories. So I think finding what it is that you're passionate about is huge. And then the other one, and I think this is where it relates to Kev, and there's guys out there like Adnan Verk, who's a, a very close friend, um, you know, Ashley Adams and Mike Gam, who I've had a lot of experience working with as hosts at, uh, at Pac-12 Network. I mean, all the analysts that I've, that I've spent a lot of time with, I mean, I mentioned a, a bunch of them already, Matt Muehlbach, who's an Arizona star. I, I think being a good person and maintaining relationships really matters. And I, and I, the field right now is so hard and, and people take advantage of you and you don't get paid a lot of money and you work nights and weekends and it's a grind and you got to do it because you're, you're passionate about it. The fun wears off pretty early on. 
but we do it because there's really not much else we, we can do. And I would just say that I know this is quick hitters, but um, I, I would just say that uh, being a good person matters. And I would say, I don't, I don't call people contacts or, you know, their relationships, their friendships, you know, and I think that stuff matters. And, and, you know, I will do this interview and then I want to make sure we keep in touch, you know, and, and that's how I, I approach things. And I always think that that matters and it comes back and it's not just for personal gain. Obviously there's a lot to be gained as a, as a human in that regard, but also it does, it does pay off for you in, in a business sense. And I think that people are valued who they're easy to work with end up being the ones, you know, I, we have discussions all the time, like, Oh, that person's good on air, but they're really difficult. And so they don't get the same jobs that they they would normally get. Or even behind the scenes, oh, they're a pretty good producer, but you know what? They they can be tough to to work with. And I think the ones that value other people as people and maintain and foster those relationships are the ones that are having more and more success, especially as we see more and more cuts in the industry. Yeah, I love those points about finding something that you're good at and also being a good person and building relationships. One thing that I would add that might tie in with your relationship with Kevin would also be being open to different opportunities. There was a job that I got when I was in college covering a high school football show down in San Diego where I'm from. And it's because I'd interned in the summer at a sports station down in San Diego, but then I went back up to LA for school And at the end of the internship, I was offered a role to be a field producer for this high school football show. And the guy offering it kind of knew, he gave me the out. He said, hey, I know you're going to be living in LA. It's a lot of driving. It might not work with your course schedule. So no worries saying no, but just wanted to offer it if you want it. And I kind of, in the moment, frozen, just took him up on the out. And was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. One of my best friends later told me, like, you've got to be crazy, like, this is an opportunity. What else are you doing? Like, does it conflict with your schedule? Is it not possible for you to make it down there? And doing that show opened up doors eventually to the biggest career break I ever got, which was going to Beijing and working with NBC for the 2008 Olympics, because the final round interview I had was somebody who had also worked on a high school football show back East. And just having that common thread, that was pure luck. But at the same time, I think the more people take advantage of what really is within their control, even if they don't realize it, um, you know, the more you stack the deck in your favor, it is ultimately a numbers game. And and the more of those opportunities you can take advantage of, then the more likely it is that you'll find yourself in that kind of lucky position. So um, I love that framework about career advice. And I'd also like to touch on the other pillar of this show is that a lot of, as a lot of listeners would know, excuse me, would be putting the hops in props and hops beer being a big component of what we talk about from time to time. And it's totally cool if you're not a beer drinker or a craft beer fan, but do you have a favorite beer or other libation when you're looking to unwind and relax? Yeah. So there's, there's two, I mean, as a Pennsylvania guy, Yingling is, is something that, um, you know, I, I love, I love Yingling, uh, and when, whenever I can get it. And interestingly, I, I probably fell in love with, the idea of beer drinking, and I don't do it as much anymore with four kids and, and being pretty busy. I don't have those those same opportunities uh, as, as I once did. But in college, going to Ithaca College in New York, uh, Labatt Blue was like my drink of choice. I, 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 I went to visit the school and a girl who lived in the neighborhood was a year older. And she um, 
she took me out when I went to go visit the school and we like had a pitcher. I don't even know if I've seen a picture of Labatt since, since then, you know, only, only in bottles and rarely do I come across it these days, but that was, uh, I know it's not, not the craft, you know, beer that we, we typically think about, but I remember it was like the purest drink that I ever had. Maybe the experience, maybe the ambiance, the atmosphere, what have you. But uh, that was it for me um, back then. So um, I, uh, here in San Francisco area, I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area outside of San Francisco. Like there's a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of the IPAs and the, and the craft beer fans and, and all that kind of stuff. But for me, uh, a Yingling or Labatt's and, I, and I'm a happy guy. I can promise you that. Yeah, I've got to say I'm a little bit jealous about your proximity in the Bay Area to spots like Cellar Maker for really good IPAs or even the Rare Barrel in Berkeley for some of the best sour beer you can find anywhere. But it's also nice being in California reminiscing about good East Coast beers. I know Yingling is just uh, a ritual. If we go back East for the holidays, then just get a case of Yingling and we're good to go. It doesn't need to be the fanciest thing. But to your point, a lot of it is who you're with, just the state of mind, the, the overall experience, that can elevate anything. And there's a time and place for everything, but definitely with you on having a soft spot for some of those East Coast <laughs> beers, even if they're not the fanciest, that's perfectly fine. So um, yeah, one very final question before we plug what you're up to. I have to ask, because I read in your Twitter bio, your proudest mm -hmm. moment was that Chris <laughs> Mullen once praised you for slipping a screen. What's the mm -hmm. story behind that? So uh, working at ESPN for seven years, you, you end up with a lot of strange relationships and stories. And it really, it really was like that the sports center commercials played it out to be, I mean, you know, you, you'd, you'd show up on campus and in the parking lot, you'd see the Mets mascot or, or, you know, you'd be in the bathroom and all of a sudden out of a stall comes some famous coach or, or something like that. You know, Will Ferrell would show up on campus, Snoop Dogg. If you go to my, my Twitter, uh, Right now, I've got a pin story about an interaction I had with with Snoop Dogg, um, which was incredible. Uh, I, I recommend people checking that out. Naismith Lives is the, the Twitter handle. But uh, one day I got a call from my buddy Greg Pike, Piker as we called him. He's an excellent producer, still an ESPN producer. But he um, he had he had been a producer on Inside the NBA, uh, but he was doing our NBA shows. And I was at home that day. And he calls me up and says, hey, do you want to play two-on-two -two with uh, John Barry and Chris Mullen at the L.A. Fitness? And I, I could not get in my car fast enough to go meet up with them. And I uh, drove out there and, and played with Chris Mullen. We played a few games and all. And, I mean, as a hero, you know, a dream teamer and Golden State Warrior and just what he did at St. John's, like, I mean, New York City legend, like Chris Mullen. Are you kidding me? He was larger than life. And so the chance to just get on the floor with him and play um, – and uh, my buddy Piker is really good. It was it was fun. The four of us just getting a chance to play, you know, just games of two on two with Mully was was unreal. I mean, I, I since got a chance to become friends with Jay Williams and got on the court with Jay and we'd play games at ESPN where we'd play. Um, you know, one time we were playing at the ESPN had a court at the time. They don't anymore. But outside the, the cafeteria and we'd play like our summer league games. And all of a sudden you'd get um Joey Chestnut comes out and is watching or Jalen Rose would come out. Blake Griffin one time happened to be there on campus right after he got drafted and he comes walk, not playing in our games, but they'd come out and watch games for a little bit just because we were playing. Um, but that experience that I had playing with, with Chris Mullen, I mean, I will never forget it. So yeah, I, I um, set a screen and then instead of just uh, waiting for him to go by the screen, I just slipped it, went to the cup. He threw me one of those, you know, classic, incredible Chris Mullen passes, and I scored. 
And he's like, oh, this kid, you know, his New York accent. He's like, this kid knows how to play, like slips the screen. Look at that high IQ. And I wasn't a kid even then, but, you know, I'm in my, my 30s, but I'm like, this is the great, like, that was it. Strike me dead then. I've, I've lived. So, uh, you know, that was a very special moment for me. So, yes, I'm proudest the day that Chris Mullen praised me for, for slipping a screen. Yeah, what a high note to wrap this up on. I just have fond memories of growing up playing NBA Jam and being the Warriors just to shoot lights out with Chris Mullins from three, especially when you could get Mullen on fire, then forget about it. So amazing real-life story. For NBA Jam. We got him on fire yeah. for NBA Jam in the LA Fitness that day, for sure. So Amazing to have that experience to bring it to life, for real. So that's awesome. Well, Adam, thanks again for your time. Want to plug... Twitter at Naismith Lives. The Rejecting the Screen podcast is there. Anything else I'm missing, or anything you'd like to add? No, uh, we're we're taking a hiatus from the podcast. I encourage people to go back and listen to some of the interviews we've done, whether it's Reggie Theus or Ryan Rosillo, Adam Morrison, um, countless others, Brendan Haywood. I mean, so many Earl Watson, Don McLean, like so many guys that we we had the chance to interview that gave us just some some really great, insightful stories. We really we're all about stories. Um, and uh, so that that's been a lot of fun and we're, we're taking a little break from the pod right now, but, but I encourage people to listen, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm always up for conversation. Um, you know, uh, I may be doing some more on the locker room app. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Um, don't know really what's next in my world, but, um, but yeah, I mean, follow me on Twitter and I'm sure I'll keep people posted. And I, I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. I, I think you got a great thing going. You're doing a great job with the pod, and it's been a blast being on with you, Matt. Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that from somebody like you. And and once again, thank you for your time. I hope that we can meet in person before too long, perhaps over some beer and basketball. But in the meantime, look forward to continuing to follow your work. Thanks again, Adam. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Thanks again to Adam. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at Naismith Lives and also check out the Rejecting the Screen podcast. Even though they're taking a hiatus, a lot of good evergreen content from previous interviews just as relevant now as ever. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with a friend who could benefit as well. And a friendly reminder to please follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would be incredibly helpful. You can also follow me on Twitter at mlandis18 to keep the conversation going. And you can check out dimers.com for a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Adam, plus sports betting information you can benefit from all year long. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Coming up on Selection Sunday, enjoy your first look at a March Madness bracket in two years, and I'll talk to you next week. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. 